Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You talk about parenting with a new lens. What do you mean by that? Many parents feel that they're stuck or it's too late. It's never too late and it should be invigorating to be able to reset yourself and look through a different lens. And that lens isn't going to come unless you take a good hard look at yourself. Welcome back to Fill in the Blanks. This is a day where I can kind of check my brain at the door. I don't have to think today because I got a brain across from me. It's my good friend, Dr. Charles Sophie. He is back. You know Dr. Sophie, board certified psychiatrist, former medical director of the Department of Child and Family Services here in Los Angeles, which is the biggest department of its kind, where he was the director for many, many years. Full disclosure, he's a member of the Dr. Phil Advisory Board, so has been helping me for a long, long time. I asked him to come back. I don't know how many times he's been on fill in the blanks. Not enough, I can tell you that. But I asked him to come back because he has a new book out that is so timely and so relevant that I really wanted to get in-depth on it and talk to him about it. This is a wise man, a wise professional, a great colleague, and a dear friend. The new book is Family Values, Reset Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. And coming out of the pandemic and all of the things that it presented challenge-wise, this just couldn't be more timely. This is an essential modern parenting guide to rebuilding parent and child relationships, really making them stronger than ever. It's structured around four essential strengths of relationship, trust, shared beliefs, family history, and perhaps the most powerful of all, forgiveness. Dr. Sophie, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me, and I wouldn't have this book if it weren't for you, so thank you. Well, I'm glad you do have it. I can tell you that. As we get into this 21st season, I am talking with families over and over and facing what families are dealing with coming out of this pandemic. It's been tough on a lot of families. Some families, they use the time to really close some gaps and yep. build some things back. Right. But a lot of families suffered losses yes. of loved ones. Yes. A lot of them really have been under pressure from financial losses of yes. jobs and businesses. Kids suffered educational gaps. Yep. Yes. Developmental gaps. They've regressed to prior levels of functioning. There's just been a lot of conflict. There are problems that we've not seen before. To this magnitude, absolutely. And substance abuse, domestic violence, all, you know, child abuse, child neglect, all went up because there were no mandated reporter eyes on these children either. Look, I don't know whether people thought about this or not, but when the schools were shut down, they said, 
a couple of weeks. Give us right. a couple of weeks here. We'll get a handle on this. Now, I don't fault people for not knowing what was going to happen with the virus because it was unknown, right? right. They were yeah. it's a virus. You feeling their way along with this. Right. But I do fault the government for getting heavy-handed in our lives. I fault them for closing the schools without having a plan to reopen them. Right. I think when they shut things down, there were some unintended consequences that we're now having to live with, which is why I say this book is so important right now. Thank you. Yes. I mean, and one of the biggest is the mandated reporter eyes on these children. Teachers and policemen, clergy, you know, there's certain professionals who are deemed mandated reporters who need to report to the child abuse hotline confidentially or with their name, anything that they may think is suspected child abuse or neglect. When you don't have those eyeballs on children, especially eight hours a day with teachers, then a lot goes by that we don't get to notice. We don't get to see. We don't have to go check. And kids were living months and years now without any eyeballs on them to report anything. Yeah. When we're talking about mandated reporters, we mean there are certain people that are employed by or licensed by the state that are under directives that if they witness something that they believe puts a child in jeopardy or is evidence of neglect or abuse or molestation or endangerment of a child, correct? then there is a mandate that they have to report that within a set period of time. And when they shut the schools down, a lot of mandated reporters, this could be school bus drivers, cafeteria workers, teachers, administrators, coaches. Aides, anything in the school. Aides, anybody. School nurse, anybody. And kids spend 40% of their waking hours at school. Correct. So all of these objective eyeballs were not on these kids. How much did the reports fall off when the schools got shut down? Well, typically we get about 18,000 calls a month. We fell to maybe six or 7,000 a month. Wow. Some of them were coming through Zoom, but what can you see through Zoom really? Especially if people don't have their cameras on or a child isn't sitting in front of the camera all the time. It's hard to see. So they fell significantly and now they're slowly climbing back up. So in some cases that was as much as two thirds. Yes. Yes. We know the abuse didn't drop two-thirds. We just know the reports dropped two-thirds. So that means two-thirds of those children that may have been neglected, abused, molested, starved, whatever, were just suffering in silence. Correct. And then the cases we did have, our workers couldn't go to the home, so they were trying to do home visit by Zoom. Again, you're dependent on a parent or a foster parent to show you what's going on in the home. You can't see if they're not going to show you. That's an unintended consequence, of course. But you wonder, did anybody consult with the DCFSs around the country about how are we going to cover this? How are we going to handle this? Was there any big confab, any big meeting or anything? It was just, you know, we all had to fall out as the directives were made and figure out how it's going to work within our own department. Okay, so 18,000 calls a month. How many of those turned out to be actionable? Well, probably three-fourths Okay, on some level of action. Yeah, some level. So 12,000 kids a month 
something like that. So, well, that's one call. There could be five kids to a call. Yeah. You're talking about a lot of kids that went through a year, 18 months, 20 months, or whatever, of what may well have been actionable abuse or neglect of some or sort. Neglect. Yeah. They've now suffered that without any help or intervention. So these now are tens of thousands of damaged children right. just in the L.A. area. Correct. And then not even talking about the academic decline that they suffered as yeah. well. And you multiply that times 50 states and all the cities in the states, and we're talking about millions of kids. Yeah. In California, we have many counties, and this is just one county. Yeah. A lot of repair has to be done. Yeah. In a short amount of time, which is why hopefully the book will help people. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. One of the things I like about the book, and I'm doing shameless plugs for this book, Family Values, Reset, Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. One of the things I love about this is it really gives some red flags, some ways for parents to notice, recognize when a child is hurting when a child is having problems because you start out by saying we've got to have a baseline and you've got to compare your child to baseline. Right. I could come in and look at a child even as a professional and until I know what's normal for the child, I don't know whether he or she has deviated from some kind of norm, but parents know what that norm is. Right. Or should know what that norm is. Yeah, they should know what that norm is. You talk about in the book, part one is finding the reset button and parenting with a new lens. And you didn't write this book for the pandemic, but it becomes acutely relevant because of the pandemic. Correct, yeah. And you talk about parenting with a new lens. What do you mean by that? Well, I think many parents feel that they're stuck or it's too late or I came from not great role models myself, what good can I do? You know, I'm only doing what I came from. And that's what I'm trying to show them. It's not, you don't have to live with that. It's never too late. You can always be a better parent, even if you have an adult child. So it's never too late. And it's always should be invigorating to be able to reset yourself and look through a different lens. And that lens isn't going to come unless you take a good hard look at yourself and understand that where you came from doesn't mean that's where you have to stay. And many people say, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, I'm not going to do what my parents say. I'm going to do the exact opposite. But they end up running right into that and becoming their parents. 
And that's because they never looked at themselves and they didn't look at what they didn't like about what their parents did, understanding their parents probably did the best they could. And what do you want to do differently? And so that's what I talk about in part one. What can we do differently that's easy and simple to fix so that you can reset yourself and look through a different lens? You and I have talked many times about generational legacy. Right. We all grow up with some aspects of our upbringing that we don't like and some that we do. When you say parents have to take a look at themselves, you got to decide what did you carry from your parents into your parenting that's toxic. If your parents blew up and yelled and screamed and cussed and slammed things around and you see yourself doing that, you go, okay, this is a generational legacy. I'm carrying forward things that I lived with and I shouldn't be carrying these forward. And that's what you're saying. Let's look at this with a new lens. And you got to be willing to take a hard look at yourself and say, okay, am I doing the sins of my father? Am I doing the sins of my mother? Am I doing the same things they did to me? Am I doing it to my own kids? Because I'll hear parents all the time say, oh, I hate it when my mother did this and I'm doing the same damn thing. Right. They run right back into it. Also, when they're being triggered by their child, you know, the five-year-old that's having a tantrum is making you angry probably because that five-year-old in you isn't dealt with. It's looking at those triggers within yourself as well because all of a sudden it's a five-year-old fighting with a five-year-old. Yeah, because you never move past that. Right. You spent 22 years at DCFS, and you said whenever you went to these homes, the biggest things you saw missing were safety and permanence. Correct. Emotional and physical safety and permanence. They didn't have a physical home that was safe and permanent. They didn't have an emotionally safe and permanent home either. Parents were immature. Parents were on drugs or maybe not. But there's lots of domestic violence and lots of issues that are being triggered in parents that are not allowing them to stay emotionally safe and stable for their kids and permanent. And then physically, they're not giving them a home or, you know, the violence that's going on around them. Now, this has nothing to do with socioeconomics. It has nothing to do with education. I know your practice, and you've got billionaires in your practice. You make it your business to see pro bono, indigent patients. You see them all up and down the socioeconomic and educational ladder. Homes where a child doesn't feel safe physically or emotionally is not limited to any one group, right? No. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with money, culture, tradition, nothing. It has to do with that person. And some of the most dysfunctional homes are some of the most affluent homes. Right. And some of the poorest homes are the safest homes. Yeah. So when you're listening to this right now, I don't want you to get defensive. And maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a grandparent thinking about what your grandkids are living with or kids in your church or neighborhood are living with, we have to take care of each other. And right now, we were talking about mandated reporters weren't there to look after these kids. You don't have to be contractually mandated to be someone that looks out for a kid. Correct. If you have a kid in the neighborhood, and I've dealt with situations over the 20 years of Dr. Phil where The neighbor had four kids, but they only ever saw three playing outside. Right. And after three or four years, they find out 
one of them's not playing outside because they're locked under the stairs. Right. And when they call DCFS and they go in there, maybe on their third visit, they finally hear some scratching and they go, look, and here's just one kid for some reason locked under the stairs and malnourished, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got to be eyes and ears, but it starts with you. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you've got to ask, he's talking about safety and permanence. Do the children in your orbit, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, do they experience physical safety? Do they feel confident that they're protected by you, by the adults in their life, and that they're not in danger from you? And the same with emotional safety. You say it refers to a state that a child is given to live in where relationships have attachment, right. predictability. Right. They should be able to predict their parent is going to be there a hundred out of a hundred times. Right. The consistency. They need to count on that. Otherwise, the floor is always falling out. They never feel safe or secure. I did an interview today with a set of parents from Uvalde, and their child was murdered by the shooter in Uvalde. It's so interesting that this is right at the top of your book because they said, we didn't keep our child physically safe. And of course, they did everything, everything they, they could. could. There was nothing they could have done. Right. But what they're holding themselves to standard-wise is they're saying, we didn't keep our child physically safe. We feel like she didn't feel emotionally safe because they think she was in there for 77 minutes yeah. and the children were calling on the phone for over 40 minutes to the 911 dispatcher, two phone calls totaling over 40 minutes saying, please come help us. Why won't you come help us? He is here. He's shooting people in the next room right now. Why won't you come help us? And they were just crazed. And helpless. Because of it. And they were saying, so we know she didn't feel emotionally safe. Right. She was probably saying, where's my mommy? Where's my daddy? Right. Right up until she got shot. I asked them straight up, do you feel like you failed your daughter? And they said, yes, we didn't keep her physically or emotionally safe. Right. And we open your book and you say the number one thing is provide yourself physical and emotional safety. Right. Now, they did and think they didn't because of what happened, but every parent that's listening to us right now has the chance to do that. Yes, they do. They have the chance to do what you're saying. And I hope they do it. I really do. It's the beginning of everything, right? It's the foundation for every core of your child to feel safe. They just need to feel safe. But in the real world, when parents try to do this, the kid, you call it shaking them off, that they act like they don't want that. Of like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Leave yeah. me alone. Leave me alone. What do you tell parents when they get the eye roll and I'm fine, leave me alone? That's a great sign. You're not supposed to be their friend. They're not going to like what you're doing. That's how you know it's the right thing because they're going to fight it and be resistant. So just stick with it. And eventually they learn that that's what it means. I love you. I'm here and I'm not moving. When I was reading the first draft of your manuscript, it made me think of a friend that I had named John Maloney in high school. This was really a good-looking kid. He was blonde and 
just ripped six pack. This was the toughest kid I think I ever met. I mean, he'd fight a buzzsaw. He didn't yeah. care. We were at my house one night in the winter in Kansas City, and there was an ice storm, and we were going to go watch the basketball game at our high school. We went bounding down the stairs to leave, and my mother said, whoa, 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 where are you going? I said, we're going to the basketball game. She said, oh, no, you're not. You're not going anywhere. It's slick out there. Just get back upstairs and think of something else to do. And I, there wasn't any point in arguing. So yeah. Yeah. I turned around, went back up there, and I looked over at John, and he was kind of trying to hide looking out the window and didn't understand why. And I kind of went around and looked at him, and he had tears running down his face. Hmm. I thought, you know, wow, he must have really yes. wanted to see that basketball game. <laughs> and I said, hey, man, are you okay? He stood there for a minute and said, I just wish one time in my life somebody cared enough about me to tell me I couldn't go somewhere because it was too dangerous. So sad. He said, never in my life has anybody ever told me, no, I couldn't go somewhere because it would put me in danger. I just never heard that before in my life. And in that moment, I understood why he was so tough, why he was so get them before they get me, why he was so hard. Very defended yeah. against the pain. Yeah, it was just his way of defending himself against the world. And he was so touched. I was like, oh, God, it's her again. You yeah. know, so you right. go back upstairs, don't right. even argue. But it's her love again. Uh, yeah, and he saw it that way. Right. I took it for granted. He right. saw it that way. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah. Every kid craves it. Yeah, every kid craves and it. And they will fight it. So when your kids roll their eyes, when they try to say, oh, come on, let me tell you, at some level, it means something to them. Maybe they won't acknowledge it for 10 years, but it's not right. your job to make them happy. It's your job to keep them safe. Right. Physically and emotionally. Yeah. It's so funny that that came back to me yeah. when I read that first draft of the manuscript. It was so insightful. And I hope all my listeners will take heed to that right now and ask yourself, if you don't have that, what can you do in your family to make that part of your existence right now? I always tell parents, for example, after a divorce or after some big change or trauma in the family, one thing the kid needs to see is that there's somebody around that's continuing to run the business of the family. Correct. Parents often go the other way and say, well, this has been really tough, so I'm going to, I'll be indulgent right now. That's the time that they need to still do their homework, still get in bed at the same time. That's when they need to say, hey, it seems right. like everything's falling apart, but yet it's business as usual. So right. all the rules still apply. Yep. I guess my world's not falling apart. That's right. That's the message. And that's why I, I part of the reason writing this book is whenever we have a safety, a plan for a family to get back together and reunify in the, in the county or in DCFS, it's built on building and teaching parents how to build emotional and, and physical safety and permanence for their child. Then we could put a kid, a child back in a home. 
So if a family doesn't have that right now, you want to avoid the system, read the book and do the things. It's not that hard. It's not that hard, but it's only not that hard if you do this on purpose. Correct. It's not a matter of just saying, I want to be better. It's a matter of saying, I've got a plan to be better. Correct. Yes. Chapter two of your book, you say, change yourself, change your child. Right. Because they do mirror you. I think we get out of the universe yeah. what we put out. Yes. Yeah. We put something in the universe, it comes back. Right. And you put something out to your child, it comes back. Right. Talk about that some. What do you mean specifically when you say change yourself, change your child? Take self-inventory. Look at yourself. Look at where you want to be, what you want to shed, what you want to change, and then start to role model it. Because what you role model is 100% what your child's going to do. Even if they don't do it in front of you, they're going to do it when they're not in front of you. How many times do you hear, oh, your child's a role model citizen in somebody else's home, but they won't put their dishes in the sink after dinner. But you know that they've been watching you do it. They're not going to do it for you, maybe, because the last thing they want to do is make you happy. But at the end of the day, they're going to role model you. And that's what it means. Yeah. And you've got some exercises in the book for people to do to kind of yeah. take this inventory. But you can't really do this if you're not willing to forget about being defensive, forget about how it may look, forget about how you may grade your own paper and not like the grade. You got to be really willing to look at yourself and say, how am I doing? You got to put your ego aside. Ego aside. Yeah. This is about your kid. Yeah. Because if you really want the best for your kid, ego is not your amigo. No, exactly. <laughs> you got to right. kick that to the curb. <laughs> exactly. Because that's what's getting in the way in the first place. Yeah. You have needs that are not being met and you're putting them first. And in fact, if you put your child first, your needs will be met. Yeah. It's interesting that even though these children come from us and there's genetic components and stuff, they're not mini-me's. They have their own personalities. Right. They have their own nuances and stuff. And we have to allow for that. And respect it. Yeah. And embrace it. Because the last thing a child needs to feel is that you don't like them or who they are or how they maneuver because they're going to do it more, number one. And number two, teach them how to use it as a strength. Yeah, they're going to be different. They should be different. You know my two boys. Yes. They're very different. They are. From each other. Yeah. But they're very successful uniquely in their own ways, right. even though they're very different. Very different. Yep. I've always tried to really embrace and endorse those differences. You have to. Jordan's got 100% more tattoos than I do. Really? I didn't notice. Because <laughs> I have zero. Right. <laughs> He's right. got a shitload. Right. But that's him. I wanted him to have none, but I realized that's who he is. Right. Why squash it? And my other son, Jay, has none. Right. And Jay getting tattoos would be as unnatural as Jordan having none. Right. So you got to meet them where they are. You have to. Otherwise, they feel bad about themselves. Self-esteem plummets. Yeah. Self-worth isn't there. What's the point? You're only going to have to repair it anyway. Yeah. Jordan used to come in sometimes and he would have bright blue hair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> i say, what the hell is that? Robin would say, are you okay with that bright blue hair? i say, hey, listen, 
anything you can wash off, I'm good with right. <laughs> until he's 18. Right. And then I got a suspicion it's going to be something you can't wash right. off. Right. And it was. <laughs> sure enough, it was. Right. But he makes it work, right? Of course. And it's part of who he is. Yeah. You got to meet them where they are. You can't do that if you don't understand your own baggage. Right. Because if you have a need to control who they are, that's not really about them. Right. That's about you needing to control them. You got to be willing to give that up. And coming out of this pandemic right now, these kids need a lot of validation. They need a lot of individuality, lot. and they're intimidated. A lot of these kids are intimidated by things they used to take in stride. Yep. Have you seen that? hundred percent. I mean, kids that didn't have anxiety now have a lot more. Kids who already had some have a lot. Like, they have an actual disorder at this point. Some of it's OCD. Some of it's generalized anxiety. But they don't want to leave the house. They don't want to separate. They don't, social anxiety. You know, it's reached levels where kids were used to being home in a little cocoon now. What do you think the difference is right now with this particular generation? When I turned 16, you could get a driver's license when you were 16. Right. In some states now, it's what, 18? Some states, yeah. Yeah. But when I turned 16, you could get it when you were 16. Yeah. So when I was 15, 364 days, 23 right. hours and 59 minutes, right. you were ready. I was standing at the DMV right. to get a driver's license. Right. I didn't have a car, but I, I wanted a driver's license so I could drive because that was freedom. Right now, you could move. Right. You could go. Right. And now, this generation, they don't even go get a driver's license when they're 16. They don't need to. They don't want them. Right. They have no urgency right. for it. It's, their phone helps them. They have Ubers. They don't need anything. They don't have those kinds of needs that we did a long time ago. They're dating at a later date. Yep. They're getting their driver's license later. Yep. They're having sex later. They just don't seem to have the urgency to get engaged, involved with the world right. the way we did in an earlier generation. It's kind of sad a little bit because it's holding them back. And now I think this slows them down even more. Uh -huh. Yes, a lot more because now they're laden with anxiety and lots of academic issues and lots of social issues. And I say slow them down as though it's a bad thing. They do what they want to do. It's yeah. not that it's wrong. It's no. just different. Right. And it'll be an impact on a generation that we didn't expect, I think. But I think what's happened now does slow them down. Yeah. Before, maybe it was just a preference because they were more homebodies and all. But I also saw a statistic just a few days ago that loneliness was higher among millennials than any other age group, even the elderly that are yeah. feeling like they're sitting off right. by themselves watching the paint fade, which is not true of all elderly, but I'm talking about those that maybe yeah. their loved ones have died, their spouse has died, even some of their family, and they're feeling pretty alone. Even millennials are experiencing yeah. loneliness at a higher rate per thousand than are elderly. And I'm sure some of it has to do with technology. I think it is. I think they're living through their phones with two-dimensional yeah. relationships. It's, they're sitting next to the person they're talking to. Yeah. Through their phone. Yeah. It's terrible. And that's why in the book I talk about ways to look at these things and put some parameters in place and make some family values, start to interact and talk and reevaluate yourself. 
One of the things that I liked, obviously liked a lot about this book, because I'm talking about it so much, time for a shameless plug. Hmm. I'm talking about family values. It's Dr. Sophie's new book, Reset Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. And he said he wouldn't have this book if it wasn't for me. And I'll tell you what he means by that. I hounded him and hounded him and hounded him some more to write this book because he's had 22 years experience as medical director at Department of Child and Family Services. He's had decades experience as a board certified and licensed child psychiatrist, adult psychiatry as well. But in working with families, I just Felt like one of us was going to have to write a book about <laughs> this right now. And so I said, you write the book and yes. I'll write the foreword. Okay. But I really did. I hounded you to write this book, as you know. It's just fortuitous that it came out when it did yeah. after the pandemic right. when I think families need this. But so bad. one of the things that I really like about this is you don't ever throw parents under the bus. You really believe that inherent in every parent, there are strengths and passions that they can build on. In chapter three of the book, you really walk parents through identifying what their strengths are, what they're really good at as a parent. Even if they think they're a bad parent, you think there are some things they do well and they need to identify those. Absolutely. Why do you think that's so important? Because I didn't walk into one home at DCFS in the middle of the night or in the daytime or whatever time we were called out to a home where I didn't see a parent who loved their child on some level. Very rarely. I mean, if they were out of control from drugs, yeah, maybe. But other than that, they loved their kid and their kids loved them. The heartbreak was taking them apart. And every kid found their way back somehow, whether we put them over here or over there. So I saw that. And that's a strength. At the very least, that's a strength. Then there were parents who cooked well or, you know, snuggled with their, anything I could latch onto as a strength, we did, because that's what we built from. And that's what I want parents to do. Yeah. You had a different approach to that, I think, than a lot of people. I'm a big fan of social workers. I think they do a noble task. But your philosophy was always to unify families, not to fragment them. Right. You always tried to find a way. To keep them together. To keep them together because the alternatives were never good. Couldn't put them back together. It's very difficult. I would stay until I could get a doctor or somebody to come and draw a lab, a blood test, so I could see if a father was on drugs or I would leave the kid. I didn't want to take this child if we didn't have to. We even put mobile vans together to be able to bring services right there when we got there to answer questions so we could leave them together at least overnight and get you know, the community to jump in, the church to jump in, somebody to help just to get us through the night. Because once yeah. we took them apart, it was hard to put back together. Yeah. And foster care was yeah. certainly no answer. No. A lot of times it was, and a lot of times it wasn't. Yeah. But that's a crapshoot. Yes. You put them in foster care, you may get a right. loving, caring, giving foster parent, or you may get somebody that's running a foster kid right. combine. Right. Or you could get a loving parent, foster parent, for a month. And then after that, you got a monster because they can't deal with it. And then they react to it. That biological bond is hard to replicate. Yes, it is. And I mean, they're attached to that parent. The first nine months of their life, they attach to that parent and they will find their way back to that emotional safety and permanence that they can find. Yeah. People that read this book are going to find that 
you help them find what they're good at and build on that. You don't criticize them and throw them under the bus. You do talk about toxic power dynamics, and you do a really good job talking about how to avoid confrontation head-to-head like two bulls running together in the middle of the room, if possible, and finding some other way to resolve conflict. Right. I mean, what good is it when you're both at it? We're not going anywhere. And I always tell parents, if there's somebody's yelling, start to whisper. If we whisper, that person who's yelling has to stop to listen. At the very least, use that. But conflict isn't going to be resolved when you're head to head. Yeah. Do you think everybody has, whether it's inherited or they've specifically chosen it, everybody has a predominant parenting style, right? Yes, whether exactly, whether they experienced it themselves or they've inherited it or, or they've been traumatized into whatever, yes, they enter parenting with a preconceived idea of what it should be like and who they're going to be in it. I used to have parents that would come in and they would be at odds about who was right and who was wrong, and they would come in and argue to the death. I'm sitting there thinking, ain't neither one of you within a country mile (laughs) of of what you ought to be doing. Both of you need to just hit the erase button and start over because you ain't got a clue of what this child's going to respond to. You're doing the best you can. Children learn what they live, and you're just kind of reflecting how you were brought up. Doesn't have to be that way. And I'm not going to tell everybody everything in the book, but you talk about the balanced parent, the feather parent, the seesaw parent, the tyrant. You talk about the different styles of parenting. And you really have to match this to your child's personality. Correct. And you may change within those parenting styles from month to month, week to week, depending on your child's development and how they respond. I always told parents, if you've got a rebellious child, you don't want to take an authoritative approach. Right. you got two head-to-heads. It doesn't work. If you've got a really passive child, you don't want to take a permissive approach. Yeah, I you mean, you guys right. will sit there and watch each other right. <laughs> doze right. off. Right. I mean, somebody's right. got to take the initiative. Right. Exactly. But you describe those well and give them an interesting smorgasbord of things to think about. But you get down to something that you call sweep. And again, I'm not going to give everything away, but it's a collection of tools that will give parents really vital information they need to understand themselves. Let's walk them through it quickly. S is for sleep. Yes. Why is that so important? Well, for eight hours or at least eight hours, we should be restoring our brain with quality and quantity of good sleep. So when our kids aren't doing it, we're not doing it. It's not a value in our home. It's a problem because you got people who are angry and irritable and intolerable. So you got to start off every day having good sleep. Yeah. And when you say restore the brain, this is not a metaphor. No. <laughs> when people are getting quality uninterrupted sleep, the brain is at work replenishing itself biochemically right. in ways that increase frustration tolerance concentration, a number of things that need to happen biochemically within the brain. Right. Because if they don't, what the trickle-down effect is, then you've got an irritable mood. You have no good insight. Your judgment is off. You're impulsive. There's a lot of downfall from not good sleep. So you're building a house on sand if you don't start off with a brain that is rested and replenished. Right. 
biochemically and neurotransmitter-wise. Now, W in sweep is work. Yeah. You say you're talking about however many hours a day you spend utilizing physical and mental energy towards a targeted result. That means if you want your family to be a certain way, you got to invest in it. Yeah, 100% you have to. And you have to do it. And you have to be willing and wanting to do it. It's not just, I have to work today. Work should have some purpose and meaning for you. Whether you're staying home and you're taking care of your children or you're out and you're the CEO of something or whatever you do, it has to have purpose. You need purpose. Yeah. And if you're a working parent and you're working outside the home, then you've got to strike a balance and understand I'm working for a reason here. To provide for my family, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm going to give myself permission to do this. It's for a meaning and a purpose. And when I'm done, I'm done. And then I'm going to go and focus. And hopefully they enjoy that time that they're spending doing it. They're not bitter. They're not angry. They're not coming home with resentment. Yeah. E, the first E is for eating. And it's the importance of nutrition, of course. This is for the parent and the child because... If you don't have good nutrition, again, physiologically, you're not going to be where you need to be in terms of frustration, tolerance, durability. Right. It's going to disrupt your sleep. Your blood sugar is going to make a child act out of control when they're hypoglycemic. You know, many times kids don't have lunch and they're out of control and parents don't understand that. They didn't even eat their lunch. And then emotional expression is the other E. And you say... For a parent to be emotionally healthy, they've got to really turn their ear inward and be in touch with their thoughts and their feelings. Correct. And find an appropriate way, not yelling, not screaming, not stuffing down, but an appropriate way to give their feelings a voice. Right. I tell parents, like, you should have 50% come from your head, 50 from your heart, and it should meet and come out your mouth. Everything has to have a thought and a feeling and communicate it, deal with it. And show your children by role modeling, that's how you emote. Yeah. Now, P is for play. And you say this doesn't get enough attention. I think particularly right now with anxiety high, with depression high, loneliness at all-time high levels, it's important for people at any age, adults, if there's a grandparent in the home, There's got to be some time where you do some play because it's cathartic. It lets things go. It's self-soothing. You need the tools to be able to take care of yourself. Like when you have a child in a crib, you want them to learn to soothe themselves to sleep instead of having to, you know, cry themselves to sleep. Well, you're teaching yourself with hobbies how to soothe yourself. That's why there are things you do by yourself, things you do with others. But on a rainy day, you need a soothing hobby. Life-saving. really is. Yeah, and some of that play that you do together, you just need some time to be kind of silly, you know, with your kids. If your kid tries to make you laugh, laugh. For God's sakes, yes, that's a gift. Yeah. They want to tell you how they love you. They want to tell you, you know, am I good enough? Laugh. You're doing them such a world of good. Their self-esteem, their self-worth, and then they see you smile. Yeah, it takes a thousand attaboys to erase yes. one, you're not good yes. enough. Yes, I mean, that's the other thing at, at DCFS. I saw a lot of kids when I'd walk into these homes, who they were the parents and the parents were the children. And they were doing anything they could do to make their house work. These poor kids at five, six, eight, ten, twelve, 10, 12, 
And really, it should have flipped. And so that was my job to flip it without having to break them up. Yeah. It's really sad sometimes when parents communicate to their kid that they're disappointed right. in their child. That's so painful. Right. And most of the time, it's them disappointed in themselves. So take a look inside and you can change a lot of that. And then you have a different outcome with your kid. You talk a lot in the book about having a framework for the family, having guardrails and having some definition about values. You really need to know who your family is and what that family name stands for. That's critical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's the point of having a family then? It's just a group of people hanging out together then. If there's no purpose and no cohesiveness and no focus, what do you stand for? I remember when Jay was... I guess he was in seventh or eighth grade, and he had a friend over, and Jordan was seven years younger, so he was maybe four or five, and of course he wanted to follow his brother around all the time, and Jay's friend was over, and Jordan went to go get something or whatever, and his friend said, hey, quick, let's, let's run in here and close the door and, and hide, and he won't find us. And Jay said, uh, no, we don't do that. Right. That's a family value. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, we, we just don't do that here. That, that would be mean and that would upset him. And we just don't do that here. We don't treat each other that way. Right. And I overheard that from the other room. And I was really proud to hear him say that. Just like, we don't do that. Right. Our family doesn't do that. Right. We're not mean to each other. We don't do that. And that was the only explanation he needed. That's not who we are. We don't do that. Right. Without knowing it, he was expressing a family value that we just don't do that. Right. And he got that from the role modeling of you and Robin. And that's important for kids to know, right? There are yeah, certain absolutely. things just like we're the Sophies and we don't do that. Right. Right. We don't steal. Right. We don't right. do we don't, drugs. Right. Just, we don't do certain right. things. Right. hundred percent. Yes. And you've got to ask yourself, what do your kids know about your family values? What are the things that we just don't do? And I don't think many parents have an answer. That's why we wrote this book, because they can certainly do some inventory and make some and for the rest of their lives have great family values to instill and pass on. I think a lot of people maybe know those things or have those things. They just haven't inventoried and articulated them. Yes, I agree. I think you really are going to cause people to do that when you get into chapter nine talks about role modeling. Chapter eight talks about communicating and connecting. Chapter seven, the five essentials of your new family portrait. That's where you get into all those things. And I think most people are going to find I do know those things. Right, they do. We just haven't really acknowledged them out loud because we make life decisions. Every day. Life decisions are things that you make and then you just embrace them. Like most people make the life decision that they don't steal. So they might get up in the morning and say, oh, man, I'm running late for work and I need a little cash. Do I want to rob that 7-Eleven <laughs> on the corner or stop by the ATM? 
they don't have that discussion with themselves because they've made the life decision, I don't steal. Right. So they don't have to debate that. They just go to the ATM. Right. And they've instilled that in their children. Yeah. You're causing them here to say, let's write some things down and make sure that we acknowledge that because kids take pride in that. Absolutely. And parents sometimes think that they don't have you know, value, but they're huge family values that you've just assumed yeah. and taught, but they're of value. Yeah, I grew up in sports, and so we learned some of those things in sports. Yeah. That yes. we hustle, we yes. give 100%, yes. we support our teammates, we show up to practice on time. They're values that you learned as a team, so you incorporate those right. things. That was important for me because my dad was a drunk, so he didn't go into a lot of that kind of thing. So you get them somewhere, but parents can give those things to their kids. And they do a lot of times without even knowing, just by role modeling. And you spell it out in here, and you're going to cause them to do these things on purpose. But look, congratulations on this book. You You really did a good job on this. Thank you. I love that it's action-oriented. It's doable. It meets the parents where they are at a time that they really need a partner. Yes, and I'm here to be a partner. Well, you're partnering with them in this book, and it's not a bunch of theory. It's not a bunch of philosophical musings. It's action-oriented things to do to lead your family out of a maze that a lot of families are in right now. Right. I think that's great. You should read the foreword. It's good. I've seen that, and I've heard a lot of people comment on that. Yeah. It was by a very learned guy yeah. that wrote that. Thank oh, you. Oh, that was me. Never yeah, mind. So I see that. Thank yeah. you. Good forward. <laughs> you guys will really enjoy this book, seriously. It's out now. It's just been out a few days. Family Values, forward by Dr. Phil McGraw. Reset Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. I don't apologize for doing a shameless plug Uh, for the book. I think it is really a top quality book. I think this is going to be a staple for parents for a long, long time to come. You took a long time to do it, a lot of thought, a lot of research, and I hope you're proud of it. I'm very proud of it. I hope you're proud of it. I'm very proud of it. Yep. I hope people can tell I'm proud of it (laughs) because it's a good book. Thank you. I hope you'll come back soon. I hope you'll be on the show soon where we can actually put this to work with some families that need a lot of help. Yes. Dr. Sophie, thanks for coming by. Thank you. I appreciate everything you do. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. So long. 